Ten Grounds chapter. It's a Saturday night in Berkeley, and we're back with the Avatamsaka Sutra. So I'd like to invite you, please, to join me in reciting the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. You'll find that on the front cover of your text. And let's do that right now together. Namo Text please to pages 82 and 83. Basha, Basha We're on the second stanza, second verse. Okay, these are verses. And the preface to this goes, Ar Shuo Song Ye. They, um, it says, they, he, uh, Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva Shuo, and that means to speak, but also means to explain. And Song are verses with melodies and rhythms, so with melody and meter. So I think we're going to chant. From here on through to the end of the verses, we're going to chant with a, what in the Catholic world is called chant tones. So we're going to do that. 
to atone with it. So let me give you a line and you follow me. Let's do the English now. Their faith and understanding are vast and great. Their will and delights too are pure. Intent upon the search for a Buddha's wisdom. They bring forth this unsurpassed resolve. Okay, let's see how it, does, how it sounds in English. Their faith and understanding are vast and great. Vast and great. Their will and delights too are pure. Their will and delights too are pure. Intent upon the search for a Buddha's wisdom. Intent upon the search for a Buddha's wisdom, they bring forth this unsurpassed resolve. They bring forth this unsurpassed resolve. I like the sound of that. That that could go in some very interesting directions. What are we doing? We're listening to a bodhisattva. His name is Vajra Treasury, Jingangzang. Um, this is the Bodhisattva who, when the Sutra began, we've been lecturing on this for a year plus, when the Sutra began, he didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want to even explain the Sutra when a large crowd of Bodhisattvas and sages and arhats and gods and dragons, and Kinaras, Garudas, Maharagas, etc., were all kneeling in front of him, palms together, saying, please, please tell us about the Ten Grounds. We want to know what's in the Ten Grounds chapter. And he said, not going to do it. You recall how that went, those of you who were there? He had his reasons. He explained them. And then didn't say any more. That was that. He made up his mind, not going to talk about it. And what happened next was, a bodhisattva from amidst the group, Moon of Liberation, kind of spoke up on behalf of the assembly and said, um, heard what you said and respect all that, but this group are not beginners. Who do you think you're talking to, essentially? And it was, you know, it was veiled politeness, but you could see that Moon of Liberation wanted Vajra Banner, Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva to um, recognize that these were um, seasoned bodhisattvas with long practice, with deep wisdom, they could understand what was being said, have no doubts. That's the way he came back. 
Well, you'd think that, you know, Buddha Sutras being scriptures and polite and all that kind of, hmm, you know, this is a sacred text, so how can you have any kind of conflict in it? Well, we got conflict. Um, the two of them continued to debate, and they both had their points, and Moon of Liberation was saying, come on, who do you think you're talking to? Speak the Dharma. We're here. We can't wait. He gave him reasons. He said, we're like bees who are hungry for nectar. We're like a thirsty person on the desert who can only think of water. We're like somebody who's sick and longs for medicine. That's how much we want to hear the Dharma. So, what are you waiting for? Well, Vajra Treasury Bodhisattva um, restated his meaning, told why. In fact, he thought people might slander the Dharma. They might hear it and say, mm, don't believe it. In which case, it'd be better to not say it at all and have that happen. So he says, no, that's it. I'm not going to talk. At that point, the Buddha intervenes. And it's really interesting how the Buddha goes right over the heads of the two debating bodhisattvas and says, it's okay. Essentially, it's okay. You can explain the Dharma. Um, in fact, we Buddhas um, have been waiting for you to do it. And then <clears throat> a whole host of Buddhas who have the same name show up, rub his head and emit light and give all the auspicious signs to let him know, in fact, this is the time to speak the Dharma. So he does. My point in, in reviewing all that is to remind people how hard it was to get to hear the prose part. Well, that part has come to an end and we're now back in the, uh, the verse restatement. So it's the, this is the, uh, basically we've gone back to the beginning of the content, but it's changed form. And this form, as we said uh, last week, the form of this part of the text is meant to be easily memorized. We explain some theories. There are theories about where these verses came from. And you'd have to go back 2,500 years to get the real story, to know true or false. Is that really the case? But it kind of stands to reason. I think it's a good theory that says the verses and sutras came from a time when there was no tape recorder, there was no uh, MP3 recorder, there was only brain-based memory, there was no silicon-based memory. And so people had to commit, if they wanted to remember what the Buddha said, they had to commit it to memory. And words that have a meter are easier to memorize, easier to remember. If it goes bump, 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 you can tie it to your heartbeat, tie it to your breath. You can remember it longer. So verses are a really good way to memorize things. If you think of um, mm, what happened last week. Last week in the blogosphere, um, there, were, um, there was a new edition of Winnie the Pooh issue. Winnie the Pooh has been tied up by Walt Disney 
for a long time and nobody could publish but there's somehow the the copyright got released and so a whole new edition of Winnie the Pooh everybody's favorite stories of a bear and the kangaroo Eeyore and a donkey and and Piglet and all the favorite characters are now out in print one more time and there were also pictures floating around the internet last week of the original Winnie the Pooh the actual stuffed animals that A.A. Milne's son Christopher Robin owned so you can see the first Winnie the Pooh and the first Eeyore and the first Piglet and Kanga and Roo it's really cute they look like pretty normal teddy bears you know they're just pretty normal and Tigger and Eeyore so there they are and I remember my mom reading Christopher Robin to me as one of my first first experiences of metered prose when I was one I was just begun when I was two I was barely new nearly new when I was three I was hardly me when I was four I wasn't much more when I was five I was hardly alive but now I am six I'm clever as clever I think I'll stay six forever and ever well, look what happened to those plans. <laughs> Impermanence happened to those plans. And I got to be seven and eight and nine and then older. So that's bump, bump, bump. When I was dump, but dump, but dump, but dump, but dump, but dump. So I remember him to this day, right? Now I'm six, I'm clever as clever. I think I'll stay six forever and ever. It rhymes in the right places and it goes bump, 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 bump. So we remember. So there's some evidence that these verses are the original Ten Grounds chapter and that the text is an elaboration of that. So when we get here, mm, here we are with kind of doing some historical digging around the roots of this text and it turns out this is the oldest, deepest part of the text if you buy that theory. So, was it spoken or was it chanted? It was chanted. You know it was chanted. And it was probably in, not Sanskrit, because Sanskrit was written. It was in a local dialect, pretty much. Sanskrit was, when it finally got into the, the hands of the people who could write it down, it became Sanskrit. But before that, it was probably, you know, what do we have right now that's similar? Hip-hop. Spoken word poetry. Hip-hop is a whole layer of spoken literature that everybody can take part in I, I'm too old when I listen to hip hop I have to read it I can't get it on the fly I don't hear it but I know there are people for whom they can pick the rhymes out and they know exactly what's being communicated I have to work at it but I appreciate that that language form carries current cultural meaning the way this did back then in whatever language so when it was first spoken it was probably in kind of a hip-hop Indian dialect that, that was the one to hold the Buddhist meanings. Now, it worked because we got it. Here it is. This is mm, a blast from the past completely. This is words that have been in our consciousness for two and a half millennia. That's amazing. What else today did you touch that has that much historical weight behind it well the air 
you know, the basic elements of nature, but you could make the point that these sutras are basic elements of human history, basic elements of consciousness, because they haven't been changed, they have been carried on in this form since, right? Since when? So, how neat to be able in 2010 to be able to crack these open, and here they are, just as as they were when they were first put into Chinese from Sanskrit back in the in the Tang Dynasty. So when we go, their faith and understanding are vast and great. We're updating it to another cultural domain, kind of English language, mm, lining, line singing, which has been in in this country in America since the early 17th century. But here we go. You know, we're definitely this is. Mm, Sutra Dharma for postmodern ears. Okay, so that's a little bit about the form of what we're doing. Let's look at what, what it said. The Bodhisattvas' faith and understanding are vast and great. Their will and delights, too, are pure. Intent upon the search for a Buddha's wisdom, they bring forth this unsurpassed resolve. Bajra Treasury Bodhisattva is talking about... Um, Bodhisattvas on the first ground. They have vast, great faith and understanding. Um, What he's doing is he's describing what a bodhisattva is like in the first two lines. Somebody who has faith and understanding. They, in other words, their minds are the kind of mind that when they hear something, they go, uh, that's true. Xin is the word. They take it in and verify this is it. This is the real thing. And then they don't spend mental energy doubting it anymore. Doesn't mean rigid. Doesn't mean brittle. But a shallow mind doubts a lot. Wastes energy. Believing and then rejecting. Believing and rejecting. Holding on to um, that murky kind of cobweb lint under the bed kind of area of not belief and not not analysis either. I think it's important in looking at the question of faith in the Dharma to understand Buddha Dharma is often called the religion of analysis. Analysis is not doubt. And that's, it's really helpful, I think, to clarify that. If my mind is always going, well, I'm not so sure. I can't really um, put any weight on that. 
until somebody tells me or some authority, some expert says so. Until then, I'll just kind of mm, reserve my mm, commitment to it. That's crippling because your mind never goes deep versus a mind that says, oh, faith and understanding. You want me to believe in, mm, let's say, you want me to believe that um, cause and effect is true. Okay, well, let me see. Cause and effect. That means if I do this, this will happen. If I do something else, something else will happen. Let me try it. Drop something. Oh, I think, let's see. Gravity. I've heard that gravity is true. Okay, here we go. Ready? Oh, I've just verified that a heavy body tends to move down. Hmm. Through my analysis, I've discovered that that's something believable. Gravity works. Here's a cause. Here's the effect. Drop it. It falls. Hmm. I think that's trustworthy. Okay, that's a different kind of mind. That's the analytical mind. That's the mind the Buddha wants us to look at the Dharma with. That's not a doubtful mind. That's an analytical mind. The Bodhisattva's mind of faith and understanding that is vast and great comes from really looking into things, really working with principle. Not kind of, well, wait till I hear more and never going past that superficial breath-holding state, right? When a bodhisattva looks at dharma, they go, oh, yeah, okay, well, let me see now. How can I... Uh, the Buddha believed in it, but how did he get to be the Buddha? How did he get there? Because he went out and actually tried it. That's the bodhisattva's point of view. And it's different. It's not doubt. It's active engagement with analysis. So we say when you come to the monastery, when you come to the Buddha hall, you've got to bring your mind inside. You can't check your mind at the door of the Buddha hall and expect to get anywhere. You'd be better off reading a book or watching TV than coming inside and, number one, taking it from somebody else or holding on to that kind of murky that state where you never quite mm, get past the surface. You're always, they say the ant is always running around the shell of the watermelon. He never gets through the, the watermelon husk to know how sweet it is inside because he's always running around on the outside. So that's the difference between doubts and analysis. And faith in the Dharma is something you get to only through your own personal experience. The Buddha was really clear about saying, don't believe it unless you yourself have had the experience. If you haven't, you don't have to even, you know, you don't have to say, I believe. <coughs> don't say, I disbelieve it, just because you hear somebody else criticize it. That's also wrong. But statements of faith, yes, I believe this is true, should come only after you yourself have put the shoes on and walked down the road and know what it feels like to walk in those shoes, to actually get your feet moving. Then you can say, yeah, that's my experience. These shoes work. They carry me. Okay. So, faith. Understanding... I'm going to sneeze again here. <coughs> Cough. 
Um, there are four, this is a kind of a technical thing, there are four aspects of the Dharma that mm, come up in the Sutra over and over again. Faith, understanding, practice, and realization. Xin jie xin zhang. And the first two are what get you in the door. So you stick around, and then bit by bit you decide to practice. Xin jie. But understand that xin and jie, faith and understanding, are only halfway. If you haven't xing, if you haven't put it into practice, if you haven't put the shoes on and started walking, you'll never get to jump, which is transformation to realization. So a complete cycle of, mm, let's say, the way the Buddha gave us the Dharma, the spiritual path in the Buddha Dharma involves all four. First you hear of it, you kind of go, hmm, it sparks in the mind. That would be the jia, the understanding. Then there's xing. You put it into practice and there's zheng. You realize. You could also say xin and jie happened up here. Xing is below the waist and zheng is the whole body, including the spiritual transformation. So the, the third step, the xing, the practice step, requires you to actually put your body into motion. You have to actually bow. One of the best parts about um, the pilgrimage that I took at one point in my practice was watching young people approach Buddha Dharma and how different that was from most of the adults that we saw. Often we'd bow through a neighborhood and kids would come out and go, what are you doing? Okay. And then they go on. They would do it. They would like imitate and they would, you know, kind of try it a couple times and then go, okay, what are you bowing at? But they would try it first. They would like throw their bodies into it and then go, okay, I, yeah, I try. It's kind of dumb. <laughs> but they would try it first, and adults are always, except for the rare individual who would come out and like, you know, bow for a week or something. But kids are always ready to put their bodies into it because it's kinesthetic. You can actually do it. There's something to do. It's not just yes, I believe that so and so did these things in the past. And, you know. So, um, there are four steps. Faith, understanding, practice, and then you have the feeling. There's, there's the actual experience of it, and bit by bit there can be jump, realization, where you change. Okay, so, faith and understanding, vast and great. They've done a lot. Um, last week in, in San Jose, uh, a woman said, she asked the question, the most commonly asked question I get ever is, remember, anybody remember what I said? I've talked about this before. 
people, last time I introduced this, I asked, you know, what, what do you think of all the questions that people ask is the question most commonly asked? What would, what would you say? Jason, what question is, not to put you on the spot, Jason, what question is the most commonly asked question, would you say? How can you verify a rebirth? Mm -hmm. The answer is can't. You've got to open your eyes. I mean, there's one way, not to say I need to answer your question. Thank you. That, that was, that's a good typical question you might get. But um, I would say, Master Hua would say, when asked that question, he would say, um, when you go to sleep tonight, do you fully expect to wake up tomorrow? Hope so, right? Probably. Okay. Well, do you have any reason to doubt you won't? You know, mm, hope not. You know, a big earthquake might come tonight. But um, he would say, likewise, do you have any reason to doubt that there will be a future life? Mm. So, kind of. Okay. No, that's not the question people ask most. It's also, uh, you know, the one that gets asked second most. Why do you guys not eat onions and garlic? That's the one. They ask that a lot. Uh, and one that probably comes in third place is, Dharma Master, you know, I got these ants in my kitchen and I try not to kill, but what am I going to do? Or cockroaches, right? That's a big one. Can I kill the cockroaches? We get that one a lot. And number four is probably, mm, are eggs okay? Right? So two, two out of four are food issues. The number one, anybody else? Darius, what's the number one question we get asked? Got it. Anybody? Phil? Best practice. Best practice. Five stars for Phil. That's it. Best practice for me. That was right in your tongue. I know it. Right, right. It's true. Did You were here when I said that, Phil. That's no fair. You, you remember that. Okay, it's true. People say, and she said on Sunday, Dharma Master, I've heard about 84,000 Dharma doors. Which one is the best one for me? Okay, good question. I'm always happy to hear that question. Why? Because that means somebody is already stepping into the idea that they can practice. They're already taking that on. And I will say that this is a Mahayana question. In Theravada Buddhist countries, that question doesn't come up very much. Why? Because the number one practice for lay people is Bhante, may I offer you more rice? making offerings, planting blessings. If you say to those lay people, well, would you like to recite the Buddha's name or hold a mantra? They go, am I allowed to do that? Uh, what's a mantra? Right? They don't have those practices. More and more, um, Theravada lay people are being introduced to Vipassana meditation. But the notion of 84,000 Dharma doors, that's a Mahayana, northern tradition idea, pretty much. Okay, so, she asked, Dharma Master, what is the best practice for me? And by golly, I, I was amazed. Because there it was, the real question that I get asked over and over. People hear about 84,000 Dharma doors. That's a bawan si tian faman. That's a very common idiom in the Mahayana Buddhist world. And she said... And yet there are also people who will say that you should iman shan ru. You should practice one exclusively. 
literally one gate enter deeply meaning that you need to have one practice that you work on otherwise you scatter so she asked this nuanced question this lady in San Jose so I said this is not a glib answer I'm not trying to slip your question but the answer is the best practice for you is whichever one you like and her face fell Hmm. trying to slip past my question no I'm not that's true whichever one you like and then as I started to unpack this I realized I had to really kind of sit on myself because there Shifu, Master Shuenhua has turned this answer into an hour Dharma talk it goes on and on and I realized that I needed to be succinct so I said of all the practices you pick out one that you like and do it that doesn't mean you can't do more than one at once and if somebody says to you Iman Shanru just practice one and go deeply that answer may come from someone who is afraid that you will scatter and so he's encouraging you not to scatter but Iman is not to be taken literally that if you meditate you can't recite the Buddha's name that if you recite the Buddha's name you shouldn't meditate that would be to miss the point of Iman Shanru deeply enter through one door okay Shifu would often say everybody wants to be number one everybody wants the best one right so that's natural that's human nature if you happen to like to meditate that doesn't mean that reciting the Buddha's name becomes number two or becomes an inferior practice not you may at some point decide to adopt another practice along with the one you're already using that's perfectly okay there are 84,000 Dharma doors none of them are number two that's the way he would answer that so that's dealing with the second half of her question the first half of her question which one's the best practice for me is depends and again that's not a tricky answer depends okay some people can handle more than one practice I'm one of those I like to do a bunch of stuff I have a kind of a translator's mind and I can hear Chinese coming in this side and speak English out this or the other way around so for me I often would be doing three or four things at once not at the same minute but during the day and I would put equal energy into each of them and they would be successive and progressive practices memorizing a sutra I'd be memorizing a text I would also have a bowing practice I would also recite the great compassion mantra which is pretty much my primary practice and I would also meditate and I would also eat vegetarian diet and observe the five precepts and the bodhisattva's precepts and the bhikshu's precepts so you realize that practice is like this fabric it's like a texture and you kind of weave it now Marty the former Hong Chao professor Verhoeven one practice he likes to recite Om Mani Padme Um while he meditates and has a contemplation that he does and he meditates 
that's what he does. And I would tell him every now and then what I was doing. And he'd go, you're nuts. How do you ever keep it all straight? No wonder you're so scattered. You're just confusing yourself. Why don't you get real and practice something serious? <laughs> different. So, okay, so people are different. It depends. So, that was the answer I gave this lady. So here are the bodhisattvas whose faith and understanding are vast and great. How can you have vast faith and vast understanding if you don't practice a lot? If you don't try it out? You can't. So, they're guangda. Not only that, it's ji guangda in Chinese. Xin jie ji guangda. Really guang, big, broad. Really da, really big. That's because they do it a lot. Watch TV less. Meditate more. Right? When it's coming up to Chinese New Year's. Chinese New Year's coming up. Asian, Lunar New Year's. Right? Not only Chinese, Vietnamese New Year's. Lunar New Year's is coming up in February. What's the date? It's February 14th. Okay. It's called that in Vietnamese. Right? Is that accurate? That? Did I say that right? That? I always get it wrong. Kind of. So, how many of you have investigated Maitreya Bodhisattva's three sutras? Mila, San, Bu, Jing. Not very many, right? Try it out. Maitreya Bodhisattva's birthday happens on Lunar New Year's every year. And, interestingly enough, another historical footnote here, up until a certain like century, Maitreya Bodhisattva's practices were number one in China, not Amitabha. Amitabha's Pure Land came later. And when faith in Amitabha rose up, faith in Maitreya Bodhisattva just kind of petered out. It's true. There used to be Maitreya monasteries, Maitreya practices, Maitreya Fahui. Not to say gone, just to say kind of popular. There was a time when Pure Land, Amitabha, was there but not dominant. Now it's the opposite. Everybody goes, Namo Amitabha, Namo Amitabha, right? How many of you go, Namo Mile Pusa, Dang Lai Xia Sheng Mile Zun Fu? Not that many, right? Dang Lai Xia Sheng Mile Zun Fu. Maitreya Bodhisattva, who is about to come, who is on the way to arriving. So interesting how practices come and go. So, I'm suggesting that all of us on the way to Buddhahood can profitably expand our practice when the opportunity arises. Now, that being said, you can easily scatter too. What's to be avoided is, you know, you're in finishing up your Chan session and you go, you know, I've been watching these beads all week. You know, I wonder if I recited the Buddha's name, I bet I could really focus my mind. Let me get your Namo Amidovana. You, your Chan scatters, right? That's to be avoided. To like, just at the point where you could have a breakthrough, you abandon one thing and take up the other. So, in everything, middle way. But my point in explaining this is to say, if you want to get Ji Guang Da Xin really big, fast, great faith and understanding, Give yourself some time and look into it. Also, look long. Think, mm, okay, this year, this year's Chan session, I actually sat and tried it. 
I meditated more because it's been cold and wet here in Berkeley, California, Northern California. I've been sitting more. Um, I wonder how I'll be sitting in 2012. It's now 2010. If I keep this up, where will I be in two years? I've been able to sit for 15 minutes without my legs shouting at me. I'm going to die. No, you're not. I'm going to die. I really am. No, you're not. Sit, sit still. Will you give me a cookie? Just sit still. I'll give you a cookie. <laughs> right? You can have this conversation with your legs in meditation. It's insane how your legs will just negotiate with you. <laughs> okay, five more minutes, but no more, okay? <sighs> Smoke rises out of your knees. It's true. It's really amazing how visceral your meditation can get. So you say, okay, 15 minutes now. In 2012, which is two years from now, I can maybe sit for an hour and a half. Maybe an hour. I can at least wait for the bell. Right? Give yourself two years, 24 months. Think about it. 15 minutes, expand it by 45 minutes in 24 months. I can do that. Wouldn't it be neat to be able to sit to the bell? Yeah. So, use guang da, look long, and think, how are my practices going to mature over the years? Shifu would always say, cultivation is not for today. Cultivation is not for this week. Cultivation is not for this lifetime. Right? Think long. Cultivation is for life after life. When you make this kind of vow, it's like, what happens? The pressure goes away. Got to get enlightened. Got to get enlightened or I'm going to go get baptized. You know, I'm going to chuck this Buddhist stuff. Maybe I'll go, go to heaven instead. Right? People put this pressure on it. If I, don't, if I don't get some results, I'm out of here. You know, it's like, well, that's the marketplace mind. That's the win and lose mind. That's the bought a bad product, going to exchange it mind. You know, going to upgrade. Which, that's the mind we're trained in, but it won't carry you down the path. Because, why? One major reason why. Progress in the way is measured by reduction. The longer you cultivate, the less stuff you have. It's exactly the opposite of the marketplace mind. There's nothing to get. When we practice, we reduce affliction. We reduce confusion. We reduce worry and doubt. We reduce that feeling of never got it, just haven't got it. I'm such a loser. That's exactly, that thought is what we reduce. Right? And we just go, oh, I'm meditating. Why? It's funny. The last six months I've been meditating, I realized I like to meditate. I'm sitting here because I enjoy it. It's a really nice feeling to meditate. It's, I kind of feel more myself than ever before. Before I was meditating, I was always kind of like not having fun yet. Fun is somebody else is having fun. And I was always looking at my watch and thinking, if I don't get enlightened by this weekend, you know. But somehow that just kind of vanished. The longer I sat, the more it was just enough to sit there. I kind of felt 
more myself, more whole, kind of like I went deeper inside than I ever had before. And that's enough. That's the kind of thing that can happen as you cultivate. The pressure goes away. Once you think, hmm, the longer I practice, maybe the vaster and greater my faith and understanding have grown bit by bit by bit. And that seems to be enough. In fact, not getting anything really takes the burden off. And the practice seems to work and it gets lighter and brighter. So, okay. Their faith and understanding are vast and great. Furthermore, their zhi, yao, yi qing jing. Now, this yao is a word that can be pronounced le, right? It's also the word of yue, of music, yun yue. So, zhi, zhi is pretty unambiguous. It's will or intent. There. It's a picture of a heart or a mind and on top of it is the, the word for a knight. Knight in armor is a shi. And it's also the word for scholar. By, ex, ex, by ex, extension, by connection. So it's that mind that is mm, not forceful so much, determined. So it's your determination, is your zhi, somebody who's got zhi qi, somebody who's got real determination not to quit, to go another hour in practice. That's the zhi, their zhi and their yao. Now, if we read it as yao, excuse me, it's, mm, it can mean things they like things they take delight in, things they enjoy. And there's a whole school of kind of the Buddha Dharma, the Buddhism of fear that says that you're not supposed to enjoy any of this. It's supposed to be white knuckles all the way, grit your teeth. Anytime you enjoy something, you got to, you know, stomp on it. I've met Buddhists like that and I usually run the other way when I meet him. I used to be one of those people. And then I looked at the mirror one day and realized, actually it was Master Hua who uh, kind of shook me out of that one. And that's a function of needing to get something, right? Bodhi or bust, right? Got to get enlightened this weekend. Mm, boy, I bit that poison bullet for a long time. And Shifu, I told people, I told this story recently when we were earlier back in the text um, I was Marty and I had reached City of 10,000 Buddhas at the end of the pilgrimage and sure enough I hadn't gotten enlightened and that was a major crisis for my greedy seeking mind and we continued to bow around the Buddha Hall at City of 10,000 Buddhas and we were living in the back that room where they store books was where we lived and I was really watching my watch and just thinking, boy, what happened? I guess I'm a failure. I guess my pilgrimage was a failure. I guess I blew it. Having these kind of totally afflicted thoughts of self, war, and war soyo, me and mine, right? And the mine part was 
starving because I didn't get what I thought I was supposed to get. So bowing around and every day that the bodhisattvas didn't appear in space to rub my head and congratulate me was a day of deepening knots, tightening knots. That was not a happy time. Um, So one day, walking around the Buddha Hall, when when Shirfu was visiting CTTB, which he did in two or three days a week, and he would be in San Francisco or Burlingame the rest of the time, he would uh, come into the hall at the end of Wanku, the end of evening chanting, and we'd the whole assembly would be walking. Depending on how many, we'd be doing the dragon filing through the seats, right? walking around the Buddha hall. And Shurfu would stand. He would just stand there and you'd walk by. And there was definitely a sense of him uh, checking in kind of taking your pulse as, as you walk by in a metaphorical kind of way. He would watch everybody. And it was quite a, quite a moment of confronting all your projections because you'd be, that whole week of stuff that you've been working with in your mind as you cultivate would kind of like, you know, I wonder if Shifu can see all the false thoughts that I've had. You know. I wonder if Shifu can see whether I'm actually enlightened yet. You know, and just all the stuff, and you project it, and you, nope, I shouldn't be doing that. You pull it back, then it would come out again, you pull it back, and your thoughts would go crazy as you walk by Shifu. It's because here's the teacher, here's the, the model, the role model, and, you know, you'd think, uh oh, how do I measure up? How am I doing? So one day, I was in the middle of this squirrel cage mind just running through my brain. You know, ah, all of the afflictions, just one after the other, like a train going down the tracks. And I'm sure it was showing on my face and, and uh, my body wasn't healthy at the time because I was just so tied in knots. And I remember Shurfu just pulled me out of line. It was the back of the Buddha hall. And we went into what was now what's now called the Patriarchs Hall. And he said, Samyanga, just as kind as could be. What's going on? How are you? And I couldn't even put it into words. I, I want to cry. You know, it's just I'm not sure just so mixed up and so upset and you know my desire to get enlightened was precisely wrong you know there's a self I want and yet because it's a wholesome thing it's not you know I want to win a million dollars in the lottery it was I want to become a bodhisattva Shifu now that kind of you know it's wholesome so you think it's you know it should be better than I want a BMW you know it's still it's a desire it's still itself and so I just I knew that was wrong but I wanted uh, you know so of course Shifu was you always had the feeling around him that he knew your mind better than you did that he, he was clearer about your faults than you were he saw you more clearly and 
I remember he had this smile on his face and he had this childlike joy in his face. He looked like a kid. He looked like a, one of those Chinese children with seven braids, you know, and just brown cheeks and cherubic and just smiling. And he said, Ah, oh. he said, You know, when you make the great resolve for Bodhi, when you accomplish all your Bodhisattva's vows, you can come back and speak Dharma for all living beings. He said, there was this, you know, like, what else is there to do? Kind of innocent joy in what he said. And it, the time was right. And that's the mark of a really good teacher is he knows when and how much. And something about what he said, it was just like, it hit my heart and it was like, yeah, what else is there to do? <laughs> Who would want to do anything else? You know, it's like, of course, of course, you want to speak Dharma for all living beings. Nichang life, Fata Puti Shin, Nida Pusa Yuan Chang Jiu, Nikui, Weichi Chung Shang, Changje Yichi Ju Fa, Nikui Changje Yichi Fu Fa, Wei Taja. Okay, sure. Where do I sign up? <laughs> And it was just like so different from this gotta get enlightened, gotta get I must not have gotten if I didn't get enlightened already, that probably means I'm a failure, but if I'm a failure I can't get enlightened. But, you know, it's just and, you know, it's like the arguing of the, the quacking of ducks in my mouth. And it was just like, no, just forget all that, just make the Bodhi resolve and come back and speak Dharma for all living beings. And it was done, it was not so much the words, but it was just this innocent joy. That's, and clearly that's what made Shurfu happy. You know? I'd like to be like him. So I'll never forget that. It's like, uh-huh. Okay. And the, the thing about teachings like that is there's a, they're kind of a turning point from which you measure things. And like a milestone. And from that time on, bit by bit, the idea of getting enlightened, you know, teeth gritting, you know, getting enlightened, kill to get enlightened, that, that kind of inverted affliction just bit by bit went away. It wasn't as hot a desire. So what a good teacher, right? So their faith and understanding are vast and great. Their will and delights too are pure intent upon the search for a Buddha's wisdom, they bring forth this unsurpassed resolve. So, they're intent on a search for a Buddha's wisdom. Um, intent on a search, not to be confused with desire for enlightenment. Search for Buddha's wisdom when it's connected to an unsurpassed resolve means two parts. One is shang cheng fo dao, right? I'm going to realize the Buddha's way. But the bottom part is xia hua zhong sheng. In order to become a Buddha, you literally 
cross over living beings. That's jargon. That's code language in the Buddha Dharma for dealing with what comes up in your mind. Crossing over living beings means pay attention to your thoughts and then respond in a way that brings them back to a kind of ping dung, an ordinary, everyday, wholesome contentment and satisfaction. That would be crossing over living beings. The opposite of that is, boy, I'm really not happy. I think I'm a loser. Either that or I'm just the best in the world. Look out for me. Which is full of yourself versus low self-esteem. Neither one is, both are afflicted. Neither one is crossed over. So it's hard to get to recognize what is crossed over. What's the state we're looking for? Why? It's because the world pumps us full of heated imbalance. Advertising tells us we're not there yet. The one you got is not the one. Doesn't matter which one you got, it's not the one. You got to get the other, the next, the new, the updated, the better, the bigger, the personalized, the customized, the one that's just right for you. Right? That's the message of the marketplace because why? You reach for your credit card. That's what keeps the wheels of industry turning. But, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. If people make money in the marketplace, that's... But when it's so incessant and you don't hear the alternative, which is, you know what? Mm, getting that one's not necessarily going to hit the spot. And once you get that one, you've discovered the one you got is not the one. It's not the last one. You need the new one. That catching on to that wind that pushes us is really, really helpful awareness. And to be able to say, you know, no. My experience is getting the next one didn't hit the spot. That's really hard, especially if you've got kids. How do you say, no, last year's toys are fine? <laughs> you know, for this year for your birthday, we, we made cards. We, I gave you, I made you a card. Play with last year's toys. Mm. Hard. It's really tough because kids naturally want new and better toys. But if we're 50 years old and we're still looking for new and better toys, then we might find. I mean, I'm not going to discourage people from participating in the marketplace, but there is a moment when you go, you know, the getting has never really delivered. Giving, on the other hand, is really joyful. To be able to wake up to the happiness of giving is very useful. Flavor. That flavor of the joy of giving is delightful, fresh and new and inexhaustible. The more you give, the more you're able to give. Testimony, as of three days ago, text messages of ten dollars to Haiti topped nine million. First time 
people have used, have merged technology and philanthropy. Right? Within three days, it was two million. One week later, nine million dollars. People going, what was it? Zero nine zero nine nine zero Haiti or something like that. I heard how that's done. Good old Ira Flato on Science Friday on NPR. You all listen to Ira Flato. He's got a great show in the morning, Fridays. The way that's done is um, cell phone companies tied with charity. Cell phone companies went to Oxfam or Red Cross and said, okay, um, give us the, num the number and we will give our customers a password. And every time they type in this word, it's going on their bill and you get it. So if you did that, anybody do it? Anybody? All right. I'm going to drop by using your cell phone, you could donate money right from your cell phone. It's going to show up on your bill. But that goes to the charity that, you know, T-Mobile or AT&T or Verizon or Sprint uh, or Metro PCS um, contracted with. So $9 million. First time that's ever happened. You know. So how did that feel? It felt like hey, I want to do something now. That's pretty good. To be able to be, you know, sitting in your car waiting for the light to change and to be able to directly contact somebody who's been under collapsed building for a week and know that it's going, know that that money's going to get there. That's interesting. The inexhaustible flavor of giving. How joyful. To be able to f taste that instead of the I'm going to get the new one. We'll try this one. Maybe this is the last one I'll ever buy. That's un-American to have it be the last one you'll ever buy. It's un-Canadian. Right? You ought to buy the next one. Otherwise, bad for the country. Versus, nah, I might even like sell the one I got on eBay and donate those proceeds. to, Because the giving, flavor of giving is joyful. And the more you give, the better it feels. It's funny. True. Philanthropy is something that, one thing that America seems to be good at. People are generous. Phil? Online, uh, uh, that's 84,001. Press one for compassion. We have contracted with, not with AT&T, that's particularly, no. Um, not to slander AT&T. That's right, that's great. 84,001 Dharma doors, press one for compassion. Press zero for compassion. All one. So, um, to accomplish the Buddha's wisdom, they bring forth the unsurpassed resolve. That, of course, is the putishin, the bodhisattva resolve. And the search for the Buddha's wisdom ends when living beings are crossed over. What does that mean? It means when your mind is quiet. But, doesn't mean unmoving. A mind that's quiet accords with anything. It's that it doesn't stop. The famous line from the from the Diamond Sutra, Ying Wu Shou Zhu, you should make that resolve that doesn't stop anywhere. Wu Zhu. The resolve that keeps moving and accords with every situation and never loses its balance. 
the the mind that gets stuck and stops loses its balance. Oh, that's it. Can't bend any further. Can't be patient now. I got to respond with anger. I can't let that go by. That's yosoju, the mind that stops. Right? Bring forth the resolve that doesn't stop anywhere. That's the the message, the Bodhisattvas and the Diamond Sutra. So the unsurpassed resolve, hard to do by golly. Because once we unpack one level of things we can let go of, there's another one right behind it. It's really a long process. But once you get that flavor of fullness and contentment without needing the new one, there's a sense of liberation. It's really liberating. Um, Today, I went to Suji Qingyan. Suqing went to the Suji Youth down in San Jose at Orchard School. It was that day. And there they were, 150 kids from age 8 to age 18, a lot of the same familiar faces that I've been seeing, kind of this class. I've been going and talking to this bunch of kids for mm, many years now. And one whole group has gone, grown up and gone away. And now they're Didi and Mei Mei are coming along. And the ones who were the Didi and Mei Mei are now become the Jie and the Guga, older brother and older sisters. And I was going to talk about something entirely different. But I got an email, middle of the week, from the coordinator who said, Dharma Master, I wonder if you would talk about siblings getting along. Because we have been getting these nasty reports from moms about kids in the Tsuji group who are hating their brothers and sisters to the point where moms are crying to we teachers coming and saying, why can't, I can't, can you do something with them? You're supposed to be teaching them how to be good. So would you be able, Dharma Master, to talk about how to get along with siblings? We had a report last week, she said, of a young sister who said she wanted to commit suicide after having a fight with her big sister. She didn't want to live anymore. Blink, blink, blink. How's that? So there are a lot of tears in this story about siblings not getting along. Brothers and sisters hating each other. So I thought, okay, take that one on. And that was the topic. And I've been working for three or four days now with lots of help. I got advice from um, half a dozen friends about their experiences with brothers and sisters. And by golly, that's deep. Um, And the conclusion that we've come to is that it's different these days. Things are different these days. And it's kind of coming to a, a visible climax these days. So those of you, those of us who grew up with brothers and sisters and survived, made it through without bloodshed, congratulations. Also, those of you who have brothers and sisters to relate to, 
congratulations. Now I know there are people here tonight who had like eight or nine, right? Anybody have over ten siblings? Anybody? Raise your hands. Yeah. I won't name Guadran's name, but <laughs> Guadran and Gohua. And over the years, I've met a lot of them. And I met her mom, right? So how wonderful to have all those faces at the table. At some, there was some point when most of them were at the breakfast table, I'm sure. Then the older ones went away and some of the young ones hadn't come. But how rich to have that experience. Now, not to say if you grew up as an only child, you're missing anything. That can be very blissful and fine. And there are countries where only children, like countries in Europe, where big families are, are unusual. Now in China, ooh, brave new world in China, right? Single child is the norm. Okay, but here we have children in Saratoga, Sunnyvale, Cupertino, San Jose, Mountain View, Palo Alto. That's the constituency of this group who have siblings and hate them to the point where they're like making the parents cry because they can't do anything about them. That's a very interesting situation. And I have to say, it's a challenge to try to explain. Here I found myself in a position of trying to sell the value of being kind to your siblings, to your brothers and sisters, to kids who maybe should have gotten that from, you know, in days past, a very short time ago, would have understood that? Or wouldn't have even had the issue arise? How interesting, how times change. So if you have a brother or sister who you're fond of, who love you, count your stars, lucky stars. If you've got a brother or sister who you relate to and who have supported you and have been strong for you and for whom you could support and be strong with, congratulations. That's not a given anymore. Some of the wonderful stories I gathered in the process of getting ready for this talk. Um, a friend of the monastery told me last night about the first daughter in a family who, when she got to be about eight, said to her parents, okay, you want me to obey? You want me to be good? I can do that, but you've got to give me a little sister. That was her bargain. I'll behave if you'll give me a little sister. So, guess what? She got a brother. <laughs> she said, all right. I'll put up with it. I'll, that'll do. But it's not as good as little sister. So, how interesting. Now, one thing that I didn't have time to open up for the kids today was how many of us grow up in a world where we relate to things and our souls go hungry for human contact. Our spirit just craves human contact. 
but we spend more time with our things. Hmm. When it comes to the story time later on, uh, in a few minutes, I'm going to share something that came up in just parallel this week that is really kind of shocking. Uh, A bit of news from the New York Times about our relationship with machines and what that does to our relationship with flesh and blood people. Talk about that in a minute. Okay, let's go to the next passage here and I'll tell you more about the, the talk that I gave in a minute. Here we go. Jing yi qie zhi li qi yi wu suo wei cheng jiu zhu fo fa jiu she qun zhong chun sheng zhong Having purified all the powers of wisdom along with the aspects of courage as well and having accomplished all the Buddha dharmas they save and gather in the many beings. Jing yi che zhi ji wu so wei cheng jiu zhu fo fa jiu she qun sheng zhong Having purified all the powers of wisdom along with the aspects of courage as well and having accomplished all the Buddha dharmas, they save and gather in the many beings. <clears throat> Bodhisattvas is the topic again. What are they? They have purified the powers of wisdom and aspects of courage. They've accomplished all the Buddha dharmas and so they can save and gather in the many beings. Um, It's helpful to know the Chinese here because you get, this is compressed, right? The the verses are really concise. They're really tight. You only get a couple words to pack in all the meaning. So, jing is the verb. Yi qie zhi li. They, jing, they purify which is a funny idea, purified, that they like wash it, they put it in the, in, the, in the washing machine. How do you purify? I think it means master would be another way to translate it. Purify means free of self. They practice the powers of yi qie zhi, omniscience. The wisdom powers, the omniscient powers, they master them. There's no self in there. It's pure of self. Ji and Ge, as well as Wu So Wei. This the clue that we have to this one is in the in the prose sections, we went through a whole discussion of fearlessness or courage. Okay? And there's four of them, four kinds of courage, four kinds of Fearlessness and wusawe is the key word. So it's talking about that passage where the bodhisattvas are. I'm sorry, I said four. It's five. The five kinds of fearlessness. They master all the Buddha's teachings. So that's the eighty-four thousand and one dharma doors are now theirs. Jiu shu chun sheng zhong. 
They save and should. They gather in. They bring together. They call back the multitudes of beings, the many beings. Okay, now, I happen to know that the Li is a list. That's one of our technical terms. Oh, we're so short of time. I would love to um, spend some time with this list of ten. It's called the Shi Zhi Li, the ten wisdom powers. And there are two kinds. There's Fu Shi Li, the Buddha's ten powers, and there's the Pusa Shi Li. Um, the Bodhisattvas. There's the Buddha's ten powers, the Bodhisattva's ten powers. And what's neat about these ten powers is they're tools for crossing over living beings. There's our phrase again. They're tools for making people happy. That includes the thoughts in my mind. I described it a minute ago as kind of making them kingdom, making my mind calm but also active. This doesn't mean calm stiff or calm dull. It means able to move to yoso, wuso ju, in order to flow and not stick anywhere. The ten powers are ways to do that. And it's important to say that the ten powers come right from your mind, from my heart, nowhere else. When you get the ten powers, although I said you don't get anything, you uncover them. You learn to use them. You get good at using the ten zhi, li, wisdom powers. And when you hear the names of these ten, it's like, that's far out. But when you put them in the context of tools for teaching, you go, oh, that would be helpful. That would be useful. If I had to cross over my mother, if I were in a room with my mom and I couldn't leave the room until I'd completely do womuchin, cross my mother over, whatever that means, means calming her, getting rid of her afflictions. If I had these ten powers, life would be sweet. It's possible. Without them, it's really tough because you're kind of always in the dark. What are the ten? Well, in the amount of time I have left, I can just list them, but we can come back next week and, and go more deeply into them. Okay, so previews of coming attractions. I'll give you just the name on the marquee and tell you the actors in the play, but you, in order to, you have to, to sit through the first act and get all the goodness, you have to come back. Okay, the ten wisdom powers. The first one is someone who has this power always knows what is the case and what is not the case. So you've got an accurate database of what's going on. It's called the zhi jue chu fei chu zhi li. It's the wisdom power of knowing what is true, fei true, what is the case and what is not the case. You always see accurately what's going on in front of your eyes. That's number one. So two is 
知 ，you know the karmic retribution of the past, present, and future. So you look at somebody and you go, "Oh, it's so obvious that that blindness that you have is just completely based on the way you do it. Nobody does it to you. You just do it enough times, and it becomes a blind spot for you." That's your karmic retribution, but this extends to past, present, and future. You can see how what's happening now is caused in the past, and by doing it a lot now, it's going to happen in the future. That's a wisdom power. It's called san shi ye bao shi li, the karmic retribution of the three periods of time. You see that clearly. The third is. Zhu Chan Jie Tuo San Mei, you have wisdom strength of all the dhyanas, Jie Tuo liberations and samadhis. In other words, you're a meditation master. You yourself have the strength of knowing all the different places the mind can go when it's concentrated and still and pure. That's a wisdom power. Now, I'm just going to give you the names. I want to. I'm tempted to go into each one, but we'll do that later. Okay? You have that ability to know what the mind is capable of when it enters samadhi. Chan jie tuo san mei. The dhyanas, states of concentration, the liberations, and those are states. We don't talk about them much, but they're just like the first dhyana, right? And the samadhis. You have that. That wisdom strength. Okay, what is number four? Number four is you have just by looking knowledge of a person's gun. What is it? Gun sheng lie. You look. You can know exactly what that person sees, hears, tastes, thinks, and. How they react. So, face to face with that person, you know all about their faculties. What are they capable of? Just think how that would save time. You'd never say the wrong thing or not enough, or you'd be over here trying to explain something, and that person just is never going to get it. They're over here, right? And if you'd say it over there, they go, "Oh, what an incredible teaching tool!" So, it's the wisdom power. Of knowing the superiority or inferiority of a person's gun, meaning their faculties. How keen is their hearing? Oh, this is a visual person. Ah, show them colors, movement. Don't sing to them. Okay, number five is you have the wisdom strength of a person's many different understandings. Zhong Zhong Jie, truly. This person, you look at them and you know the language to use, or don't talk, right? This person is very cerebral, so you use a whole bunch of words. You describe it four different ways. Same thing, because they will get it that way. This person over here, language is not it. You show them, right? Do it. Don't talk about,、it. and that crosses over that person. But for the 
cerebral intellectual person, if you just do it, I need to understand, you know. But the opposite is also true. If somebody is not into language, the more you talk, the more you turn them off. So you show them. That's a wisdom power. The various kinds of understandings that people can have. Okay, number six is the wisdom power of knowing the various realms of people that a person has. Now this means people can come from very different entire realms. You could even say worlds. So if this person has come from recently from the the realm of the devas, if this person used to be a god in a past life, the bodhisattva knows and can provide some very pure experiences. This person was a shenyu in the past, a fairy maiden from the realm of immortals, the Xian. So this person is going to be able to understand refined states of music, for example. Or this person came from the realms of the hungry ghosts. So they're always feeling unsatisfied. No matter what they eat, they never fall. Right? So you understand. So you're able to teach. That's zhong zhong jie, surely. Variety of realms that people have come from. That's number six. Number seven, this one I really, really like. It, the Chinese is, is really critical. It's It's the wisdom strength of knowing where all paths lead. So you see with the first step where it's going to take that person. And you can, if you're involved in helping them out, you can adjust. It's the ability to know at the first planting of the seed what is going to harvest, right? You can look at the seed and know the harvest. Look at the seed and know the fruit in behavior. So you can, if somebody is going to say, well, I'm going to go mm, fast for six months, you say, nah, it's the better you can eat. So you can eat. You know, you can fast starve your mind, starve your greed, but don't don't starve your body. That kind of skill. Okay, that's number seven. Number eight is you have the wisdom power of the unobstructed heavenly eye, the celestial eye. So your vision can see to the heavens and down in the hills. So you have the unobstructed wisdom power of the Tianyan. That's like the five eyes, right? It's one of the familiar psychic powers. So the heavenly eye, that's incredibly helpful if you're knowing, if you want to cross people over. Number nine, Su Ming, Wu Ai Zhi Li. You have knowledge of past lives. That's, you know, kind of, we're getting into familiar territory, right? You say, oh, I knew in past life you were a monk. In a past life, in a past life, you were mm, a court musician. In a past life, you were so and so's mom. No wonder you're always nagging them. You know, you're always trying to feed them more greens. 
So that would be very helpful. That's number nine. And number ten is that was su ming wu lo zhi. The the tenth one is duan yong duan xi qi zhi. The wisdom power that knows how to cut off habits forever. How powerful! Because habits are the whole story. Desire is the cause, but what we do with that is what carries us into our next life. So the ability to put an end to all shi qi, all habitual behaviors, and really do it. Habits are so strong; you just leave a little tail in there, and then it pulls it all back. Little embers in the fire, toss more wood, blazes up again. So the wisdom power of being able to help somebody by saying, you know, you don't have to do. Let's do this instead. Oh, let's not go to Las Vegas this year. Yeah, let's go volunteer at the food bank instead. Okay. Do you miss Las Vegas? Not when you see the joy and the recipients of the food. Right. So, those are the ten wisdom powers. Amazing list, right? That's just the name. We just listed the names. We'll come back and talk about them. Because why? Having purified the powers of wisdom along with the fearlessnesses, having accomplished the Buddha dharmas, these bodhisattvas save and gather in many living beings. Okay, so by golly, the time has come. We got two verses lecture. Can we dedicate merit now? Um, ever since the earthquake in Haiti, we've had. A lot of images of、uh, places that could use our transference of merit, but definitely want to say that、um, the way news works is that there's news cycles and things. Haiti is. We'll see how long it's in our minds. How long. The media keeps it in front of us. The longer, the better for the people who are suffering so intensely. But、um, one of the benefits of dedicating merit is you can actually say, "We remember. I still remember family members who have been passed for a year, seven years. We still remember. So we still." Keep them in our our dedication and merit. All right, and the way it's done is just with a wish. You say all of the goodness that comes from looking into these sutras, these ancient ancient wisdom texts that are so current and fresh and so valuable. All that goodness I share with living beings with the wish that you make your wish. Okay, let's do it.
announcements right away before I forget. Um, tomorrow night we have a special event that um, just came onto the radar so we haven't announced it before. It's really um, short notice but nonetheless it'll be a great event. Professor Henry Rosemont is here with his wife Joanne and over the years, um, people who um, people who have spent time around Dharmaram University have encountered Professor Rosemont. He's the man from whom I first heard the Buddha's story back in uh, 1966 in Michigan. He is still going strong, teaches part of the year in Shanghai, um, part of the year at uh, Brown University where he lives in, in Providence with uh, Joanne and his grandchildren. So Professor Rosemont is here, he's in town and uh, he just came back from Bhutan, the country of Bhutan which is in the Himalayas, you know. That's the one that has the Gross National Happiness Index, right? You've heard of that? So, he's going to talk about his experiences. He was there at the invitation of the Bhutanese government. And they have, the Bhutanese government has combined Eastern philosophy with every aspect of life, economic, cultural, social, um, political. So he's going to, Professor Rosemont is going to talk about his experiences that he's just had in the government in, in Bhutan, learning about how they do things and, and how they've integrated um, spiritual insights into every aspect of daily life. So 7 o'clock, not 7.30 as usual, 7 o'clock right here in Buddha Hall. 
and it would be great if, if we had lots of folks here asking questions. Henry Rosemont is uh, one of the most uh, learned Western philosophers in both Western and Eastern traditions. He can read Plato in Greek and Confucius in Chinese. And he, before he went into the Marines, he was a hubcap thief on the streets of Chicago. He got, he was, went into, arrested for stealing hubcaps of the gang and woke up and said, I better get my life together, went into the Marines and did. Wound up in Asia appreciating Eastern philosophies, doing Zen meditation. Came back, got his doctorate, has taught everywhere. He's taught at MIT, he's taught at University of Hawaii, Oakland University, where I met him, and Michigan, and then uh, now at Brown. So, He's the book review editor of the Philosophy East and West. He's a true philosopher, doesn't use any word carelessly. So if you want to come and test your philosophical muscles with a pro, come and take on Henry Rosemont and you'll, you'll learn something. <laughs> He's really a teacher. So I admire him a lot and I owe him uh, a lot as well. So um, he'll be here tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. That's one. Two, um, Tuesday night, tea on tea shop, tea and dharma, 7:30. That's our. <clears throat> this will be our January event. We go over to Tions um, about once a month, and it's designed for kind of like dharma light in a way. But that's not to say invalu- not no value. We uh, speak dharma at Tions for people who wouldn't imagine that they could get their body into the Buddha hall to listen to a sutra lecture. Do you all appreciate how special you are, right? To be able to come and spend Saturday night sitting on the floor doing nothing here, listening to a monk talk about a book that's 2,000 years old (laughs) in two languages, right? At least we all talk in English. It used to be we did half in Chinese, half in English, and that was really a test. What's strange is we got us the same number of people when it was all English, but the faces changed a bit because the the Chinese speakers didn't didn't stick around. We used to do three languages all the time. We used to have a full-time Vietnamese translation going on, but that has somehow petered out. And we used to, remember, Pal Talk. We used to broadcast in Vietnamese and Pal Talk. So we've always promised that we're going to add the Chinese language layer back somehow. Um, If there was a strong movement, get some of the faces who are here tonight involved in translating Vietnamese again, I would Say, shanzai, shanzai, good indeed. But we'll, you know, we'll see how that goes. Currently, it's, we're in English mostly, but we've also added the webcast, which goes out all over the world to places like Taipei, Taiwan, and to Seashell, British Columbia, places like that, and uh, um, Sao Paulo, Brazil, Denmark, Australia. Amazing number of people listen to this webcast. So, um, anyway, we're, uh, we've been doing that regularly, and for you to come in and listen to it in person is an amazing commitment. It's not easy to get all the conditions together to come and sit here and listen. I mean, we don't even dance or sing or move or pass the plate or say hallelujah. We don't do anything. We just sit here. Mm. I've listened to a lot of... Uh, Christian services, you come out sweaty because you've been working. You know, can I get an amen? Amen. 
And we don't do that. Can I get an Amitabha? Amitabha. Hallelujah. Amitabha. Bodhisvaha. Right? We don't do that. We might someday. Um, at least we get to sing. So, um, anyway, the Tiance night, Tuesday night, is for folks who want a chance to hear good principles, but not necessarily sit on the floor for 90 minutes or longer. Um, we usually introduce a topic, and I think I'm going to talk about siblings. It's going to be that relationship that goes sideways. Xiao Shun goes vertical, parents, kids. So filial, the T part, that's Xiao, this is T. The brotherhood part goes sideways. You notice that there's somebody sitting beside you at breakfast. Oh, yeah, yeah, you look familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I want that. Don't even think about touching that, that jelly donut. That's my jelly donut. So anyway, we'll talk about that and all of the various aspects. And I wanted to share one in particular. We went into it in, so that's 7.30, Tion's Tea Shop on 4th Street. Um, I used a variety of multimedia today to talking to the, the Siji kids, and I found this incredible story, which is an audio story. It's not video, so I'm going to um, play it for you. It came from NPR, and I got it through Daily Good. Did I recommend last week? I did. That you all uh, go home tonight, go to your browser, and type in Daily Good. And what will come up is Charity Focus. Charity Focus has this wonderful service that just began with 20 people on a mailing list, and now it's up to 250,000 every day. Gets one good news story in your email box. And I was looking for uh, stories that had to do with siblings, with brothers and sisters, and came up with this incredible story that was quoted from NPR, and it's the National Storytelling, the National Story Project. You know about that? Uh, it's archived at the Library of Congress, and it's this amazing um, function where they go out with a truck, actually, around the country, and people come and tell their stories. This is the story of Julio Diaz, who's a social worker, and it's not about his brother, it's about brotherhood that he extended to somebody who robbed him at knife point. Okay? Now, I'm going to put my microphone right down here so you can hear. You'll recognize the voice if you listen to NPR. Here's the story of 31-year-old Julio Diaz. He's a social worker from the Bronx in New York City. And he has a routine. Every night, and this is our long subway commute to the Bronx, one stop early, just so we can eat at his favorite diner. But one night last month, as Mr. Diaz stepped off the train onto a nearly empty platform, his evening took an unexpected turn. So I get off the train, you know, I'm walking towards the stairs, and this young teenager uh, pulls out a knife. He wants my money. So I just gave him my wallet and told him, here you go. And he starts to leave, and as he's walking away, I'm like, hey, wait a minute, you forgot something. If you're going to be robbing people for the rest of the night, you might as well take my coat to keep you warm. So, you know, he's looking at me like, what 
what's going on there, you know, and I'm asking, well, why are you doing this? And I'm like, well, I don't know, man, you want to risk your freedom for a few dollars, and I guess you must really need the money. I mean, all I wanted to do was go get dinner, and uh, if you really want to join me, hey, you're more than welcome. So I'm like, look, you can follow me if you want. You know, I just thought, maybe he really needs help. So, you know, we go into the diner where I don't eat, we sit down in the booth, and the manager come by, the dishwashers come by, the waiters come by to say hi, you know, so the kid's like, man, but you know everybody here, you own this place. I'm like, no, I just see here a lot. He's like, but you're even nice to the dishwasher. I'm like, well, haven't you been taught you should be nice to everybody? So he's like, yeah, but I didn't think people actually behave that way. Including your brothers and sisters. So I just asked him again, I'm like, you know, what is it that you want out of life? He just had almost a sad face. Uh, you can imagine if he didn't want to. The bill came, man. I looked at him and I'm like, look, uh, I guess you have to pay for this bill because you have my money and I can't pay for this, so give me my wallet back. I'm glad to treat you. And he's like, yeah, okay, here you go. So I got my wallet back. And I gave him, I gave him $20 for it, you know, I figure, uh, Maybe it'll help him, I don't know. And when I gave him the $20, I asked him to give me something in return, which was his life. And he gave it to me. You know, it's funny because when I told my mom about what happened, you know, no mom wants to hear this, but with her, she was like, oh, you know, you're the type of kid that I wish someone asked you for the time, you gave them your watch. And I figured, you know, if you treat people right, you can only hope that they treat you right. If you treat people right, you can only expect that they'll treat you right. That's how simple it gets in this complicated world. So that's the NPR Story Project, America's Stories. That was Steve Inskeep, the the voice that we heard uh, introducing the host. So what a wonderful story. Julio Diaz brings forth the thought of brotherhood, right? This guy was immediately, he, his heart opened to the, the situation of some guy who's, as he says, willing to risk his freedom for a couple dollars. So he gives him his coat, he gives him dinner, he gives him 20 bucks, and gets the knife back and his wallet. So play that story for the kids. And um, the irony is sometimes we treat strangers better than we do our family. How funny. So, let me suggest that as we um, think about the sutra this week and how bodhisattvas are looking for ways to teach the Dharma to living beings, and to do as Shrihu said, you know, Shrihu wasn't just talking to me with that, he, when he's saying, make the Bodhi resolve and speak Dharma for all beings. He was talking to everybody. Every time we calm our minds down, refuse to get angry, every time we're patient with our moms, for their blindness, right? Every time they're patient with us, that's speaking Dharma. You know, that Shrivas principle is for everybody. We're always speaking Dharma for living beings, either negative or positively. We can also speak Dharma, the wrong kind of Dharma, but the Bodhisattva is determined to benefit others. So, anyway, this week as we think about the Sutra, maybe we can focus on our siblings. Let's think of 
Could it be that that person who is so annoying, who is just such a pain, could it be that that person came specifically to cross us over? And it's no accident that that person is here, kind of like the Bodhisattva at the kitchen table. And I just have never seen him that way. That every time they show me my bad temper, they're actually just kind of saying, mm-hmm, right. When are you going to get serious about crossing over that living being? Mm. Thank you. <laughs> Through gritted teeth, thank you for showing me. Right. Who knows? Maybe so. Maybe it's no accident. And if I can mm, find a way to get through the situation without earning, losing my temper, they've done their job. Thank you. And that thank you comes from your heart. I don't know. Sometimes they're just annoying. Okay, so there we are. And let's make this the sibling week. And if you can make it over to the tea on Tuesday night, 7.30, you'll have some of the best tea you've ever swallowed. Maybe some good music too. All right. Let's bow to the Buddhas. We'll see you next week.